For about 10 years, starting in 2007, I used to get these periodic episodes coming out of me, at me out of nowhere, intense dizziness, nausea, and then vomiting for about four hours. And then it would just disappear as fast as it came on and I would be back to normal. I will never forget January 10th, 2017. <clears throat> I was in India at that time. It was the beginning of a 10-day series of meetings there. I just had dinner and was going over my notes. The first meeting was about to start five minutes away by car, 300 people already in the church when the telltale signs began to happen. And I just cried out to God in desperation. I pleaded with him. I said, look, I've come all the way from Canada. Uh, the church has invested money in my airfare. Um, there's 300 people that are waiting. This is the first meeting, but all of that to no avail. I barely got to the church when I had to make a dash to the bathroom at the back and kept throwing up much to the consternation of the two young men who were looking after me. They brought me back to my room and I just fell prostrate on the bed, fully clothed, and woke up the next morning perfectly okay. Now, how God used that incident for his glory is another story. I just want to share that with you to show you what utter helplessness and total dependence looks like. Well, actually, there was something worse in store for me. Five days or 10 days later, I got a flight back. Uh, it was an 11-hour flight to Frankfurt. I had a three-and-a-half-hour layover and was then to take the eight-hour flight back home. Well, we got delayed by three hours at Frankfurt Airport, at um, Chennai Airport. And so I landed at Frankfurt with 18 minutes spare to spare, dashed through at the advice of the people at the gate, managed to get in there. And so there was an eight-and-a-half-hour flight tacked on to 11-hour flight with no break in between. And that did another number, another health challenge I have, which in the interest of public decorum, I will simply refer to as a plumbing problem. I have never been to the washroom so many times in eight hours, often without any intended consequences being produced. I cried out almost nonstop to God for those eight and a half hours. Now, all of us can identify those times when we've needed help. Maybe we needed financial help sometimes. Maybe you've needed physical help as maybe you were moving apartments or houses. And once in a while, you might need the gift of time where someone runs an errand for you so you can attend to something else. <clears throat> But if I would ask the question, how many of you can testify to times when you are utterly helpless and totally radically dependent upon somebody else? Probably far fewer, but this much is for sure. I bet you, if you were in that situation, you prayed. Now you might say, well, just a minute, that doesn't take a lot of brilliance to figure out. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But how about this insight? On one of those trips in the washroom, 33,000 feet up in the air, when I was doubled over crying out to God, there was a strong impression, I think, from the Holy Spirit because I've never forgotten it. And he said, Sundar, right now you are crying out to me because you are helpless and desperately dependent on me. Actually, that's your condition all the time. And if you realized that and believed it, you would be crying out to me all the time either. My mind went immediately to these verses that Jesus uh, spoke in John chapter 15, verse 5, when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, what does nothing mean? Nada, zilch, zero. Basically, according to Jesus, you can do nothing when it comes to your relationships, at home, at work, in the church, in the neighborhood. You can do nothing when it comes to your career, to your spiritual dimension of your life, any ministries that you might have. And what I want to do today is to 
help you to feel the full force of nothing. Because the more convinced you are of John chapter 15 that apart from Jesus you can do nothing, the more you are likely to have prayer move from being a belief into a value and therefore affect your behavior. Uh, if you were here with us last week, you will remember that this is the approach we are taking in this brief three-part series. That prayer needs to change from merely something we believe in to something we value in if we're really going to pray. And that will be determined by the extent to which certain convictions get formed deeply in our hearts. Last week, we looked at conviction number one that functions in this way. That life, spiritual life, real life is warfare. Not against human opposition, but against a formidable array of spiritual forces arrayed under Satan who are battling us 24-7. We've been given weapons to fight this battle, and then we also learned that prayer is not just one of the weapons that we might optionally use. It is a means by which we clothe ourselves and mobilize all of the weapons that God has given to us. Today, I want to build upon that with the second conviction that apart from Jesus, we can do absolutely nothing. And in order to feel the full force of nothing, Jesus' words alone would be sufficient. But I want to show you that all of Scripture makes the same point repeatedly. For example, let's begin with the Psalms, which happens to be Israel's worship manual, a collection of Hebrew poetry and songs. And so in their worship, they were regularly reminded of this. Psalm 33, verse 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A war, hope, a war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its great might, it cannot rescue. Then another one, his delight is not in the strength of a horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. And then here's another one, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, their watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Just in case we miss it, three times he says, in vain, in vain you build, in vain you protect, in vain you watch over, in vain you work. It's all in vain unless God builds it. Now, I want to take a few moments to address a possible objection that is forming in the minds of some of you who perhaps do not consider yourself to be Christ followers. Thank you for coming and thank you for listening in. But it's quite possible that you're sitting there saying, look, 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 just a minute. I have built a successful business from scratch. It employs so many people and we have a great run. We have a bottom line that is showing profit. And I did it all without Jesus. Maybe you're a professor or a teacher at a university or a college. You say, look, I, I have tenure in a well-known uh, Educa secular education, I've got awards. I've done it without Jesus. What do you mean that apart from Jesus, I can do nothing? Maybe you're an architect. You've designed amazing buildings and, and executed them, and people cover those buildings in photographs and things like that. What does that mean? Well, you see, in the wisdom literature, which is where the Psalms come from, the word vanity doesn't refer to the content or the substance of what we do. It has to do with value. And that's why he said the vanity, the word means futile. So yes, it doesn't say that you can't accomplish all these things apart from Jesus. It says, what is the ultimate value and worth behind them? I mean, we all know from ourselves, right, that so much success in the workplace is accompanied by a trail of broken relationships, often at home and even at work. Survey after survey shows that 80% of people hate their work because the environment is toxic. It is driven by ego, uh, bottom line driven bosses who make demands upon you 24-7. There's fierce competition. Pride pushes itself. There's backbiting, cutting corners. No one, as far as I know, has ever said at the end of their lives, I wish I had spent more time at work. It's almost always the other way around. 
Now, I know this is a necessarily brief response to your question, but I trust it helps you continue to listen. As we keep building the case from Scripture about the futility of doing anything apart from God, Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he says this, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. That is that independence apart from God, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert. What, what's a shrub in the desert? It's uh, uh, one person called it tumbleweed. This is what tumbleweed looks like. And you can, you've seen it somewhere. If you've gone to Arizona, places like that, it just rolls in the wind. It's weightless, fruitless, absolutely useless. Jesus says, that's what a person, or Jeremiah says, that's what a person is like who trusts in themselves. Rootless, weightless, fruitless, and therefore useless. Finally, Jesus himself picks up this, this term flesh, which refers to our own abilities apart from God. And he says in John chapter 6, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And later on, the apostle Paul, one of the great leaders in the early church, outstanding disciple of Jesus, talking about how we should be in our homes and as husbands and wives, as parents and workers and bosses, he precedes all of that advice by saying, you need to be filled with the Spirit who builds reverence for Jesus. So throughout the scriptures, before Jesus, Jesus, and after Jesus, lends all of their weight to this one statement of Jesus that we are focusing on, that apart from him, we can do absolutely nothing. Now, in, to, to this negative assertion that we can't do anything without Jesus, also we need to add the positive assertion about the power of prayer to make things happen. So, not only do we need to increase our conviction that apart from Jesus we can do nothing, we also need to deepen the conviction that something happens every time we pray. Blaise Pascal, the French Christian philosopher, put it this way. He said, prayer is God's means of conferring upon human beings the dignity of causality. In other words, we actually get to enter into the very creativity of God. And so, to help us build this conviction, let me walk you through some scripture that reinforces that. First of all, look at what happens in the heavenly realms, in invisible reality. And so much of prayer has to do with the invisible, the inaudible, the intangible. King David was one of Israel's greatest kings, and he wrote many of these psalms. One time he found himself in real danger, probably facing the reality of death. And he writes this. <coughs> Get a feel for the language. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. He bowed the heavens and came down. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, he sent from on high. He took me, he drew me out of the water. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Now, what a magnificent use of metaphor. Now, of course, this wasn't literal. There wasn't a fire-breathing dragon that showed up in heaven and a hand reaching down to pluck up David. No, no, he is using his ability as a poet to be able to paint a picture that seizes our imagination of what can happen in invisible reality when we pray. God allows himself to be aroused and moved to action whether we can see it or whether we can't see it. That's why of this one thing we can be certain, time spent praying is never wasted time and he never ignores our cries. Now, not only does something happen in invisible reality, something also happens in us when we pray. Let's go back to the prophet Jeremiah. <coughs> During his long ministry of preaching, the people of God, Israel, were steadfastly heading towards exile by one of the great world powers, Babylon, at that time. 
They were refusing to listen to Jeremiah, pleading with them to repent and come back to God, primarily to do the get back to working justice and righteousness and proper treatment of the poor. They were amongst the important things that they were neglecting wholesale. And so Jeremiah is warning them, but he also has to deal with a whole bunch of false prophets who are kind of smoothing things over and saying to the people, ah, don't worry about Jeremiah. He's just one of these gloom and doom preachers. Everything's going to be okay. He was give, they were giving them false assurances. Look at what Jeremiah says about them. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? But if they had stood in my counsel, this is God speaking, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, then they would have turned them from their evil way. Standing in the counsels of God is another beautiful metaphor for intimate communion with him through prayer. Only in this case, to listen and then to be able to preach. If they did that, said Jeremiah, then they would have power in their words. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet. He was speaking to prophets. But today, in the new covenant, since the Lord Jesus Christ came and we are followers of Jesus, we have Jesus, our prophet, our high priest. And you and I are all supposed to be people who teach one another and admonish one another. And it's a life of prayer that makes our words powerful and effective in the lives of people. I mean, you all know people, right? Every one of you can say to people, yeah, I've met so-and-so. Boy, when that person either speaks words to me or when that person prays for me, I just feel the weight of those prayers. I, something happens to me. There's either illumination or there is inspiration or there is explanation, there is encouragement, there's blessing. And you can even use words like, boy, that person's words carry weight with me. That's exactly what we're talking about. It is through our life of prayer that we become men, we become men and women whose words have weight. It confers upon us what one man called gravitas or weight. We become people of gravitas. What a sharp contrast to tumbleweed. That's what tumbleweed doesn't have, no gravitas. That's why it gets blown all around. It's rootless, fruitless, weightless, and therefore useless. People who wait upon God to listen to him and then speak are people of gravitas who become weighty, rooted, fruitful, and useful. Thirdly, not only does prayer mean something always happens in invisible reality, something always happens in us, then something happens through us as well. In the same chapter where Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing, a few verses later he says this to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Now, what's the main difference between a servant and a friend? Servants obey the orders from their bosses or human masters, but they don't have a clue as to the mind and the heart and the purposes of their master out of which those commands are coming. They're just isolated commands that doesn't mean anything to them. But a friend, a son or a daughter who's taking over the business, they know their master's business. They understand the purposes and the mind and the heart of God. That's why Jesus goes on to say, why? Why do I call you friends and not servants? For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not chose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Basically, Jesus is saying, everything that the father showed me, I showed you so that you can become co-workers with God and with me. That's why you're no longer servants, but you are friends because you understand the mind of the father. And then he finishes by saying, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Prayer now becomes the primary way by which they express this newfound status as co-workers of God. See, see the logic in what Jesus is saying? Everything the Father has shown me, I've shown you. Therefore, you're no longer servants, but you're friends. Because you're friends, you know the master's business. You are co-workers with me. And by the way, the primary way in which you will give expression to that is through prayer. What is true of the disciples 
is true of every single one of us. If you will sometime take time to trace through all the requests, the prayer requests that the Apostle Paul made, this great, powerful preacher constantly was asking people for prayer because he understood this, that apart from God, he can do nothing. <coughs> you will find that God's word ties the success of every dimension of our mission as co-workers, wherever that mission is accomplished, whatever shape it may take, the word of God ties every single one of those to the prayers of ordinary, unnamed men and women. For example, here's just a short list. Laborers, workers are raised up. Whether they happen to be international workers working thousands of miles away, or whether they happen to be people in a local church, uh, working in children's ministries, leading in worship, uh, having people praying for one another, all kinds of ministries. Or laborers, for example, in the workplace, when you do your work that is called secular, there's no such thing as secular work in the scriptures anyway. All of that work is your co-working with God for that. Unity, unity amongst workers. Most of the things we do, we do as teams. Whether in the church or outside the church, we do them. Unity between international workers on the field. Unity between pastors in our churches. Unity on committees. Unity on teams. All of those unity, uh, all, all that kind of unity that is so crucial also is, comes about because of prayer. In fact, the Bible tells us we have to fight in prayer to guard unity. Sometimes workers, especially those who are facing uh, hostility, the more persecutional dimensions of that warfare that we talked about last week. They feel depression, despair, and sometimes even face the prospect of death. I think something like 150,000 people are martyred every year for their Christian faith. Well, the Apostle Paul tells us that through the prayers of ordinary men and women, they can experience deliverance from depression, from despair, and sometimes even from death. And then what about when it comes to proclaiming the message? Whether we do it formally as pastors and evangelists, or whether we do it informally as a teaching in a Sunday school class, teaching and leading in a small group, or even teaching one another one-on-one. -on -one. Our words are invested with boldness and with clarity, and boldness is sometimes required in the face of the human expression of this warfare that is against us. That is tied to the prayers of God's people. Also, you will find that because of prayers, Paul says, doors are open. Well, open doors can mean visas to get into certain countries. Open doors can mean the ability to learn a new language. Open doors can mean favor with our municipal governments here for permission to use our buildings in order to worship God. All of those things are called open doors. And I've just listed a few of the things that can happen. So, here's the double-edged conviction that we need to deepen if prayer is to move from being a belief to a value. Negatively, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Positively, something always happens in the heavenly realms, in us, and through us when we pray. Now, as I move towards the end of this message, we need to ask one more question. We understand this now. We see why these convictions are, are so essential for a sustained prayer life. But can we pull it off? Where does the energy and the inspiration come from? I want to go back to the beginning again. That illustration of helplessness in my life. <coughs> and all kinds of situations where you might need help. It's part of being human, right? We need help. Sometimes we need, desperately need help. But you might say, but Jesus was exempt, right? Why? Because he was God. Well, not really, because when Jesus, when God took upon himself hum, human form in the person of Jesus, he so completely poured himself into the humanity that he lived his life here as man, and he lived in exactly these same two convictions. 
Hard to believe. That's what he says. I didn't say it. Look what he says in John chapter 5 verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do, there's the word, nothing. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. And elsewhere, I happened to be reading it last night in my regular reading. The son can speak nothing of himself, only what he hears the father speak. So Jesus fully understood himself as a human that he could do nothing apart from God, his father. He was also gripped by the positive, not just the negative that he can know. He was also gripped by the positive that things happen when we pray. Yes, Jesus prayed, and he prayed more than any one of us. No, why? If he was God, he could make things happen, right? No, no, no. He lived as man in total dependence on God, and so he prayed. For example, in Mark's gospel, which is the first of the three or four biographies of Jesus that we have, he begins not with the birth of Jesus, but day one, Jesus is in action. The adult Jesus is in action. It's a busy day. He's been preaching in the synagogues. He's been teaching. He's been recruiting people. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. You can imagine how exhausted he would be. And there was still a crowd lined up. So he went to sleep. Look what happened the next day. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. Why? They all want to be healed, right? Understandably so, I would if I were there. And he said to them, let us go to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He begins the day by getting marching orders from his God, not from pressing human need all around him. So he walks away from more people that could have been healed and wanted to be healed and were clamoring for him to heal them. And he said, no, I've got to go somewhere else. That's what the Lord said to me today. And what he prayed in the morning, he sometimes prays all night. Uh, the Gospel of Luke, another biography of Jesus, records the time when he was going to select his disciples. And it says here, In those days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. He prayed in the morning, he prayed at night. Now what about this helpless, desperately dependent, helpless prayer? Well, when Jesus was anticipating the full weight of what was going to happen to him on the cross, when he would experience God-forsakenness at his ultimate, the anticipation of that wrenches his heart. Look how he prays. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And there's desperation. So you see, he so fully identified with the human condition that both sides of that conviction gripped him. Negatively, I can't do anything apart from the Father. I can't speak, I can't work apart from what the Father is doing and speaking. Positively, I believe that something always happens when I pray. I pray early in the morning, I pray all night long, I pray in desperation upon God. Now on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you completely forsaken me? Even God was absent. That is why this is possible for you and me, because he can teach us to pray. You see, the incarnation of Jesus, we sometimes forget, if we ever grasped it, was the beginning of a whole new stream of humanity. That's why Paul calls him the last Adam or the second Adam. He did what all men were supposed to do, all human beings were supposed to do. He lived a life of radical dependence on God and radical loyalty to God. And only one man did it. And when you and I become followers of Jesus, the Bible tells us whatever the details, whatever the sequence of events that happened or not, something happened to us where the Spirit of God conceives the very life of Jesus within us 
one of the worst ways of describing it is that we are born again. We are born from above, says John, another biographer of Jesus. And we have the very life of Jesus conceived within us so that we can do progressively what he did perfectly. It's not that we become suddenly perfect and can live like Jesus in perfect dependence on God and total radical loyalty to God. But we can progressively become what he did perfectly. Which is why, gripped by the same two convictions that gripped Jesus, you and I can begin to pray as well. That's why we need to do what the disciples did. Lord, teach us to pray. <coughs> now, you know how Jesus answers that prayer? Not just by teaching. He taught, like I'm teaching you today but also by inviting us into a prayer meeting. If the incarnation was the beginning of a whole new stream of humanity that we participate in, <coughs> the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Hebrews tells us, is actually praying to the Father for us. He ever lives to pray. His ministry as our high priest. It's what he's doing today. And so every time we pray, He's actually inviting us to join him in that heavenly prayer. Because you know what? We only pray by learning to pray with people. It is as you hang around. You're learning a language, right? And how do we learn any other language? By hanging around with people who pray that language. You learn to pray by hanging around. Do you know that every time you come to pray, even when you're alone by yourself, Jesus is there praying, inviting you. And actually, I've made it a habit in my own personal life to actually fairly early on in that prayer time to actually acknowledge this truth and invite him to ask me to join him in that prayer time. So, what are you going to do with this this week? A few suggestions. <coughs> Block off a couple of time. Just two blocks of time. Okay, Nothing very ambitious, something you should be able to do. <coughs> and here's some things I want you to do with that time. Get along with God. Get along in a quiet place, whatever that quiet place is for you. Uh, and acknowledge. Begin by acknowledging and asking. Acknowledge that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And maybe that acknowledgement will involve confession of your own self-dependence, that dependence on the flesh with the result that you become like tumbleweed, no gravitas, nothing like that. And ask him, ask him to invite you, to take you in with him into that heavenly prayer meeting that's happening and so teach you to pray. Then listen to this message. Listen to it one more time because by the middle of the week you'll have forgotten most of what you heard. And, but as you listen, stop. As soon as something strikes you and write it down. Then go back to asking again. Ask him, Lord, why? Why did this thing touch me at this point? What do I need to do with this? Ask him. Now you're listening. And when he does, start following through on whatever he tells you. Now you might also find as you're listening to this message that you're not writing down something that struck you. You feel like saying something to him back. Hey, but, 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 but Jesus. What would you do if he was actually there? By the way, he is right there, right? You just can't see him. So whenever you come across something like that, stop and tell him whatever you feel like telling him. Maybe it's a question. Maybe it's a lament. Maybe it's a confession, whatever. And then on your second block of time, do the same thing with last week's message as well. And you will begin this journey of praying. And next week, come back as we do the final message in this series. Thanks so much.